the dilemma is if you see this as not a political endeavor, then you're going to, we're going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. This is a political act. Mm-hmm. Interpreting for the theater is a political act. Mm-hmm. Sharing this space is a political act. Mm-hmm. And we need to be in this conversation about what politics are being made. It's not about money. Welcome to What's Off, the podcast where we shine the spotlight on off-Broadway innovation. Each episode features interviews with trailblazing artists, administrators, service providers, and other theater workers in the off and off-off Broadway community. I'm your host, Nikki Maggio. My pronouns are N, they, and them. I'm trans, and some would call me plus size, but I like to say I'm plus fabulous. And I'm your other host, Ashley J. Hicks, AKA Ash. I'm a black woman with albinism who identifies as visually disabled. The clip at the beginning of this episode was of our guest, Lynette Taylor, who didn't realize something was off until she was able to share a powerful theater experience with her mom through American Sign Language. I recently sat down with Lynette to discuss her experience as an ASL interpreter, as well as her incredible personal account of the 504 sit-in. For those of you unfamiliar with this historical event, the 504 sit-in was a disability rights protest that began on April 5th, 1977 in San Francisco, and it lasted for 26 days. Lynette will talk about how she became involved with the protest and how the experience continues to impact her work as an ASL interpreter for theater. She talks about her collaborative work with Dazzles. And if you haven't heard that term before, Dazzle, D-A-S-L, stands for Director of Artistic Sign Language. Lynette also mentions several other leading disability rights advocates, including Judy Human. Judy unfortunately passed away after the recording of this interview. We are honored to dedicate this episode to Judy. So Ashley, is there anything else you'd like us to know about Lynette before we begin? Well, Lynette is one of the leading theatrical ASL interpreters working today. She has interpreted over 100 Broadway and off-Broadway shows, as well as behind the scenes for film and TV. She is also a co-founder and co-instructor for the National Interpreting for the Theater Seminar, and she's currently writing a book on interpreting for the theater with co-authors Stephanie Fain and Candace Brecker-Penn. So let's do it. It's time to turn the spotlight on Lynette. Be sure to stick around for a post-interview discussion with Ashley and myself. Enjoy. Lynette Taylor, welcome, and thank you for being here. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for asking me, and I hope I have something worthwhile to contribute today. I am so excited for everyone to hear this story about your experience with the 504 sit-in. So to start off, can you start by sharing how you found out about the sit-in and how you became involved? Wow, you know, origin stories are very hard. Where do you start the origins, right? I think I have to give a little background before I I moved to San Francisco in 1976. Mm -hmm. So that got me to 504. But just before that, I I was raised in Kentucky um, by a deaf mother, single mother. And so I'm a CODA. And sign language is my first language. Mm -hmm. It's my home language. It's my heart language. And I grew up in a very robust deaf community, very, very collective-oriented. Decisions were group-made. My mother was a teacher at an art school, so I loved the arts. And I went to art school in San Francisco. I got a scholarship for the Academy of Art. Um, At that time, 1976, there was no easy way to communicate deaf to hearing. And when I went to college, what I didn't realize, and no one told me, 
is that I would be separated from a deaf community, that I would be separated from my language, that I would be in an all-hearing environment. So I go, okay, I get there, and I go, okay, well, I got to find my people. Mm -hmm. Well, how? But I'm no longer part of this community. Now I have to come into a community and have something to offer. What do I have to offer? Well, I know sign language. I can kind of interpret. I grew up kind of interpreting. There were not many professional interpreters at that time. This was a nascent field. So um, I looked for the deaf agencies. I started, you know, going around, where do, how do I find the deaf community? And what do I have to offer the deaf community that they would invite me in? Mm -hmm. I'm there in 1976. I have to call my mother. To call my mother, I have to go to a deaf agency where there's a TTY. Mm -hmm. Um, We had no easy access, right? This is pre-tech. This is pre, yeah, pre-FaceTime, pre-text, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at any rate, so I'm in the deaf agency, and um, there's a call that comes through, and the man who was running the agency, Eddie Origi, who's also deaf, who came into the building on and off, um, said they called looking for an interpreter to come down to a demonstration and, and it, at the Health Education and Welfare Building in San Francisco. And he said, oh, well, guess what? I have an interpreter here right now. And I'll just pass the phone over. So they passed the phone over. And uh, Scott Lube King, who, who was making the call, said, uh, listen, we're in the middle of a demonstration. The interpreter who's here has to leave. Could you come down and interpret? And I go, well, what kind of demonstration? Uh-huh. And he goes, the civil right, it's a civil rights demonstration for disabled people. Civil rights for disabled people, just hearing that phrase was a reset on my whole life. I, in that instant, everything about my past, I understood in a completely different way. I understood that all of those moments when I couldn't share spaces with my mother wasn't because she was deaf, which was always what we go, oh, well, you're deaf, you can't go to this. Oh, you're deaf, you can't go see my high school play. Oh, you're deaf, we can't go to the movies together. That was just the given. It's a personal issue. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that framed it as a system social issue. I went, oh, my God. And I went, yes, I'll be there. <laughs> of course I'll be there. So I went. Wow. So it was almost as if this found you. You didn't go searching for it. It kind of, I don't want to simplify it by saying it fell into your lap, but it found you. It was a karmic moment. Wow. That <laughs> I was so meant cool. to be. I mean, if you want to really, I don't think that there's any other way. It's sort of recognize. you know, I think the universe sends blessings and mm-hmm. messages all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's if you can read the message, then you know, mm-hmm. right? And so the message came, you're here for this reason. This is why you're here. And uh, and that that was what I, yeah. Wow. Okay, so, I mean, this is a good transition into my next question. What was the day-to-day like for you? Or, or when you first got there, what was that experience like? Unbelievable transformative. Uh, It was a moment where you recognize that coming together in a protest is generative. And it was all about the thinking in the building and the process in the building and the collective work in the building was all about being generative. You started to realize on a day-to-day basis that minds and bodies travel through space in different ways, mm-hmm. and um, that we limit our thinking about what the universe can be by um, 
being constrained to one definition of moving through space, time, and the mind, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what this coming together just it was like, you know, taking acid. Oh, my God. The, <laughs> the, the possibilities were, uh, you know, were just endless, infinite. So I get there. They say maybe two hours. Mm -hmm. We're out there demonstrating. Judy Human rolls over, and she, she pulls my arm, and she says, come here. And I lean down, and she says, we're going in the building. We're going to take over the building. Oh, wow. Can you come in? Because we don't have an interpreter. And I went, huh, no classes tomorrow. Got nothing better to do. <laughs> sure, I'm coming in. <laughs> we thought it'd be a day. It ended up being 26 days. And... Um, it's the longest occupied sit-in in history, and it was done by disabled people. And wow. the one that was successful and changed the world, which none of us in the building at the time understood, you know, that it would extend that far. Are there any moments that are memorable for you of, of those days? Like, it, it went from you thinking that, oh, we're going to be here maybe a day, and it extended um, that long Oh, all of it. It was interpreting 24-7. We rarely slept. There were two of us, Jadine Murello and myself, who were the primary. We couldn't leave the building. Once you occupied the building, if you mm -hmm. left, the guard would not let you back in. Mm -hmm. um, there were provisions. I mean, see, this was the creative part about a disability takeover. Well, we have to have attendants come in. Well, we have to have X come in. Well, we, so they started to bend the rules for letting people come in. Mm. And because we could, um, so many of us could sign, we, were, we would stand out in front of the, the glass doors and sign across and tell people what to bring. We need this, we need that. So the next, <laughs> so the next set of attendants who would come in would bring toothpaste, you know, bring this, bring that, et cetera. Um, I had life-changing relationships there that, you know, I still, we, we're still in touch. Um, mm -hmm. Hale Zukas, who just passed away, was one of the main, you know, main leaders in the building. And he communicated with the communication board and um, had his, you know, had his PhD in mathematics. Brilliant, brilliant. And because I was in college and not taking classes, he helped tutor me in math and, and just kept on the board. He goes, you don't know this, exclamation, exclamation. I go, no, Hale, I never learned that. He'd go, where did you go to school? <laughs> and I go, I, I don't, I love Kentucky, but Kentucky? <laughs> and then he'd laugh, he'd laugh, and he'd shake his head, and he'd go, let's start over. And anyway, so um, Olin Fortney, uh, Dale Dahl, and Steve McClellan were the three deaf people who stayed the whole time in the building. Mm -hmm. Dale Dahl was a paraplegic who um, was also very active in um, grassroots community building. Mm -hmm. And Olin was the one who dragged me in music. I mean, he loved music, and he really loved the punk scene. So he would say, Lynette, come on, come on, after we left the building, come on, come on, you gotta, I got I to gotta go. Yeah, you have to interpret this for me. You have to interpret this for me. Um, there were bomb scares, there was Clyde Memorial, there were dog searches, there were so many conversations about how we were going to make this space work. We, mm -hmm. we set up a mini city. I mean, where were people going to have sex? People had relationships. You know, somebody set up a tent in the hallway, uh, charging 25 cents an hour. Oh, wow. So you have a little privacy. I mean, and... <laughs> 
there were the other thing that was so fascinating. I mean, the, I was so out of my element. I was 18. I thought you got off the bus and you would be in the city. I was living in an SRO in the Tenderloin. I had I was so unworldly mm-hmm. uh, and provincial. Um, these people were brilliant. They were cultured. They were from the world. They they all had PhDs, masters. I mean, I was. It was like, oh my gosh, there's a whole world out here that I had no idea existed, and they showed me that it existed. The organizers were all women: uh, Mary Lou Breslin, Kitty Cohn, Judy Human, and you know, for this time, you know, I mean, we were. We were NOW was just a getting established. You know, you you had this backdrop of feminist conversations going on, and to see women in such power um, and facing congressional, con- I mean, mm-hmm. and fighting, not mm-hmm. bowing down, fighting. Judy Human, why are you? What are you crying about? What are you shaking your head about? Mm-hmm. You don't understand where we're coming from. Don't pretend to, and just calling it. No dancing around the conversation. Mm-hmm. This is what's real. This is what we need. We're staying until we get it. Kitty Cohn is the organizer. She was the one who really brought in everybody, brought in the Black Panthers, Glide Church. There were so many other, um, I, the, the automotive IAM, the automotive um, machinist mm-hmm. union. Um, she was a great strategist. She was working as an editor for the Black Panthers in, mm-hmm. in Berkeley at the time. And so, and Brad Lomax, who was also in the building, who um, was, a, I think, a, he, he was in the building. He was of the Black Panthers. So they reached out to ask for support. Black Panthers uh, organized ways to bring in food. Glide Church organized ways to bring in food. It was, uh, it was, I think we were all just, Brett, I mean, we, how, 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 we were incredulous. The idea that we could be forming coalitions across, across so many um, sectors of life, and also um, just in awe that we had support from the Black Panthers. We were mm-hmm. all starstruck. Oh my gosh! I mean, everybody wow. was like, oh, "Black Panthers, the Black pa- really supporting us." I mean, it was really quite. It was an honor, um, and. A, a moment of recognizing solidarity mm-hmm. that if we don't do this together, none of us are going to make it. But Brad later, I mean, if you look online, he he and he wrote a an interesting article about his experience in the building, and then talked about that there wasn't enough representation and the racism that was still mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, I think of course we all. I mean, Avenue Q says it. Everybody a little bit racist, right? So we all have our work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, even though we're striving to do better, we still have a lot of, we still, we still it, create harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that harm has to be looked at and mm-hmm. then, you know, navigated so it doesn't perpetuate. Right, right. I want to go back because you mentioned this in some of the memorable moments. And in our research, um, we heard about this unused elevator that became a favorite spot for <clears throat> intimate encounters. Mm. <laughs> but you also mentioned there was a tent. <laughs> the elevator shaft was for the VIPs. <gasps> oh, there was a hierarchy. Just saying, just saying, yeah, there was. I mean, it was really, I mean, and it's funny how hierarchy exists or it manifests even within 26 days. People sort of understood, oh, yeah, that's for the big makamakas over there. So we're going to make our 25-cent tent. Uh, so, 
Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, the other thing about living together for 26 days is you get to know each other pretty mm-hmm. intimately. We all stank. I mean, I think you see that in the literature. I mean, we had no showers. Finally, they brought in, you know, a way for us to clean. Um, the the There wasn't a lot of privacy, so you did get to know each other's bodies in mm-hmm. very, in very um, you know, ways that were not typical. So you also got to know ways that, oh, gosh, I never thought about having sex that way. That looks interesting. <laughs> I mean, it opened up every possibility. That's what I'm talking about. It, it, there's something about this idea of um, boundaries yet stripping away, opening up intimacy to mm-hmm. include to include all kinds of ways of being intimate. That mm-hmm. is, uh, it's very powerful. Anyway, okay. I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, I don't think you want me getting more graphic. No. <laughs> well, I, I think what you just said speaks to, like, the bonding that happened, you know, over the course of the 26 days just by nature of you all being um, in the same space and occupying the same space, which that is a great um, result of this sit-in is that the, you know, the bonding that took place. And of course you're going to get closer because (laughs) you're all stuck in one location. So that definitely makes sense. Which is what the world should be. You know, you'd think. No, right. (laughs) I mean, the world should be that 26 day sit-in because that's what you learn. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's what non-disabled people learned every day when they came into the building. Mm -hmm. At first it was just sheer hostility and this like, ugh, look at these bodies, Ugh, look at these people. I mean, the disdain was just dripping. And we were sitting on their desks. We were under their desks. We were in Califano's office. We took it over. That's where the food was served. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of a sudden, their like, comfort zone is getting challenged. And they're having to deal with, look at, and reckon with architectural barriers, mm-hmm. communication barriers, systems that were not working, that were literally designed to exclude and not include. And now it's in their face. Mm-hmm. It's not at a remove. And over the course of a week and two weeks, you start seeing the change in attitude. Mm. You start seeing this, oh, I never thought about the fact that you could fall down the stairs because there's nothing there to mark the fact that a stair is about to begin for someone blind Mm -hmm. or the fact that, oh, you need an interpreter, of course. Oh, I can't just yell loudly at you and you'll suddenly hear me. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, all those, you know, all those little moments of like, oh, I have to do something a little differently. They're adapting. Mm -hmm. They're shifting, right? So think about what would happen if, if we weren't living in a society that is so segregated, Mm -hmm. those natural interactions would just lead us to a different place. So what were your takeaways from this experience? You know, how did it it impact your work as an interpreter? Uh, I left art school. Mm -hmm. I, I realized, I guess for me, it was that moment of what is it that I really have to offer humanity? And the, um, and this is kind of sad, and I think it might have been a mis, a mistaken notion. Uh, the idea that for me to pursue my art would be selfish. Mm. And I think that that was probably, you can pursue your art and it not be selfish. It can be very generative as well, just like the sit-in. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew how to balance that yet mm-hmm. at that time. And so I left art school and I started interpreting and um, interpreting... Oh my gosh. I mean, I 
so grateful for that opportunity and path. I would never have met as many people as I've met brilliant, brilliant beings in my life and learned so much. It, it is what has taught me. So kind of widening the scope a little bit, in what ways do you think this event shifted the landscape of disability justice efforts? I think it moved it from, as Kitty Cohn uh, identified, it moved it from this um, problem is my problem mm. to this is a civil rights issue. Mm -hmm. This is a societal issue. And it's a rights-based issue and rights can't be parsed out. Rights are here for everyone. And it also challenged the idea of who's deciding what these rights are defined as, what these rights look like, what these rights live like and where they're housed. And I think that's, uh, those are issues that we're still dealing with. And, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you know, because it's still, these, these decisions are still being made not from community-driven conversations or they're really um, still being made by those in power. Mm -hmm. And equal is getting defined as same. And mm -hmm. when you define equal as same, then you have to go, well, what are you comparing yourself to? Right. And you're comparing yourself to the white, straight, male paradigm, mm -hmm. um, which is something I never want to... I have no <laughs> aspiration of becoming... Excuse me, I don't mean to insult any white, straight males out there. But it, it wasn't... That's not my aspiration. Right. So then if you're offering me access that looks like... Or equality that looks like becoming another, the dominant other, in order to be equal, well, it... It just doesn't make sense. Right. And it's just perpetuating the same old harm. Mm -hmm. You're just inversing a power. The problem is the definition of what the power is. Right. right? And what that's getting defined as. So how did theater jump back into um, your journey and, you know, bringing interpret interpretive theater? How did that come about for you? I saw National Theater for the Deaf for the first time when I was probably around 13 years old. Mm -hmm. um, there was a bus load from the Kentucky School for the Deaf that went to see National Theater for the Deaf. Um, my mother and I went. A couple of things happened. It's sort of like the civil rights moment with Scott Liu King. Mm -hmm. This moment also reset my whole understanding of um, my language, American Sign Language, and art, the power of art. It was the first time that I could share a theater experience with my mother, Aww. right? So think about that. That integration happened from the other side, mm -hmm. not from the hearing world, not but from the deaf world. The deaf world invited everybody in. And so for the first time, I'm seeing theater with my mother in, my, in the language that I love and treasure. My mother was a poet, too. She's just a beautiful, beautiful... Um, yeah, she's beautiful signer. At any rate, um, I saw uh, Bernard Bragg perform, and uh, it was William Blake's Tiger, Tiger. And in that moment, for the first time, I understood that American Sign Language was a language that could express art. Mm. Uh, there were so many attitudes about what sign language was. Within the deaf community, it was always a treasured language. It was the language. I mean, you know, you would see people in the deaf community, I, I would be deaf for the language because that was the treasure. Everyone mm -hmm. loved it. But the outside messaging on sign language was that it was an impoverished language, mm -hmm. that it was broken English, that 
that it was not capable of expressing scientific thought, abstract artistic thought, that, it, you know, these, these assumptions, wrong assumptions about the language, uh, paucity of the language, which, you know, as we know, is not true. Right. But those uh, attitudes and feelings were uh, prevalent in the community. It, it's a form of autism, linguicism, that then creates a layer of shame. Mm -hmm. So there was this moment there for me, and no, no one knew that. I mean, yes, the research had our big, I mean, had begun on sign language being a, a you know legitimate language, etc. But the community had not embraced that idea yet. It was still in the ivory tower, and there was actually some incredulity, is it really a language? You guys mm. are just making this up. You just over there trying to get a job, you know. Um, so seeing him on the stage and National Theater for the Deaf awoke in me an understanding and a pride mm -hmm. in my language. Mm -hmm. And my mother and I shared that moment together, which is just like, whoa, yeah. Oh, wow, that is, that is so beautiful. I love that. And to be able to experience that with, with your mom, it seems like once again, <laughs> it found you. It wasn't something that you were, you know, actively looking for. Karma, karma. Yes, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to pivot a little bit and uh, talk to you about your, your process today and the work that you do today um, with Dazzles. And if you could share what Dazzles are and how you collaborate with them. Sure. I mean, sticking with my mother, this seems to be a maternal thing I here. love it. Uh, I love it. <laughs> my mother was my first Dazzle. Um, and this is before we, you know, officially defined Dazzling. Mm -hmm. It was sort of... Um, interpreting for the theater came out of natural interactions. Mm -hmm. You know, deaf friends... I was in San Francisco at the time. You had a lot of artists there, a lot of deaf artists there who were involved in uh, UC Celebration of Deaf Arts, who were involved in Deaf Media's filming of Rainbow's End, which was a Deaf Sesame Street version, mm -hmm. right, super sign. So there were there was a lot of um, uh, desire to see art um, mm -hmm. and deaf people going, come on, let's go to the theater, let's... Uh, and we would, you know, sit together and interpret. No standing in front of the stage, mm -hmm. nothing formal. Um, and so it was sort of a mutual co-construction of meaning. Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't know what the hell that meant, and I'd fingerspell it, and they'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, and they'd sign it to me. Go, oh, yeah, that's how you express that. That's okay. Oh, good, good, good. So, you know, it was very much a mutual um, mm -hmm. conversation about what interpreting looks like, how trans the process of translation was very collaborative. Um, going back to My Third Eye, a National Theater for the Deaf and Bernard Bragg and, and Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. Uh, it was the first time that my mother and I could work from frozen text together, right? Mm. So in the kitchen every night, I'd be signing over and over, tiger, tiger, burning bright, and she would be making corrections. No, no, that's the wrong inflection. No, it was this translation. And so for the first time, we were sharing literature in mm -hmm. our language together, right? Mm -hmm. In ASL, not in English, not in, not in written English. So this was, uh, you know, it was very formative in... When we began interpreting theater, we drew from all of those natural interactions, right? Working with dazzles. So let's create meaning together. What's clear? What's not clear? Mm -hmm. What needs to be made explicit? When do we need to focus to the stage? What, um, you know, 
what how, what is too performative, what performative information is necessary. Um, and so that work with the Dazzles, and I must say, you know, hands-on has been the one who has really, really supported this endeavor. Um, and and Tomasetti is actually one of the best Dazzles I've, I've worked with over the years, other than my mother, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful exchange between cultures, languages, and uh, forms. Mm-hmm. What makes sign language interpreting different is that I mean, than other translation processes, is that it's visual and performative. Right. So we have to then honor the visual-to-visual agreements that are happening on stage and in our translation, as well as the performative and expressive. Mm -hmm. If our expressions aren't matching the expressions on the stage, then there's a little bit of a disconnect, Mm -hmm. but we also have to adhere to the principles of the language, right? right? You mentioned hands-on, which you do a lot of work with as well, and, and, and... Our Art New York community is familiar with them. How did that that uh, relationship form? I moved to New York in 1987. Uh, I heard about this organization, Hands On. I was interpreting in San Francisco just prior to that. Um, the first interpreted show we did there was Children of a Lesser God with mm-hmm. a national touring company. Mm-hmm. And that was the impetus for all of this, actually. Deaf community, I mean to formally begin interpreting theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, deaf community wanted to see the deaf stars on stage. And of course, this is a story about their community. So um, ACT out of San Francisco, American Conservatory Theater, um, uh, arranged the first interpreted show there. And they the process was beautiful. They did it just like we do now, but they auditioned. Uh-huh. Um, they brought in deaf artists to audition and screen the interpreters. I, I was chosen. I was not first choice. I was second choice. I will just admit that right now. But, um, uh, but I got to do it anyway. Um, the process was brilliant. It was very community involved, deaf community involved. And but the product was odd. Hmm. They built two platforms on either side of the proscenium and placed one interpreter on one side who was a male, and he was going to interpret all the male lines. Mm-hmm. Me on the other side, and I was going to interpret all the female lines, except when they were signing on the stage, and then we would focus to the stage. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, think about that tennis racket, eye gaze. You mm-hmm. Right, exactly. There's no coherence in the visual conversation. So um, it, process was fabulous. Product... We didn't know what this looked like mm-hmm. yet, right? Hands-on had been doing a lot more here with um, DTW, Dan- mm-hmm. Dance Theater Workshop. They had already begun. So when I moved here in 1987, I auditioned for Hands-on. I did, uh, I think, what George Benson's On Broadway. I think that was my audition piece. I used the <laughs> song, right? And I just kept thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, right? Um, they screened my work. They liked my work. And then I think, I mean, I, I, yeah, clearly, because they asked me back. Um, <laughs> they liked you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I did Shakespeare in the Park. Oh, wow. At one of the Henrys. I don't remember which one, but I think that was my first hands-on, you know, and a long relationship now, many, many years with hands-on Beth Prever, Candace Brecker-Penn, and now Dylan Junk-Kyle, yeah. Wow. So what kind of work do you contribute um, now, currently? I interpret a lot of the shows. Uh, I mean, we work, I do whatever is needed to be done, you know, (laughs) on the shoulder, on the ear, Uh, work to get workshops together. We need a lot more training. There aren't a lot of opportunities for training. Like I think in the past it was much easier because we didn't have 
it's interesting. This propulsion for demand for interpreters mm -hmm. in the theater has pushed us to accelerate in a way that we weren't ready for. Mm -hmm. That's on us. We should have been ready for this, right? We should have been extensively doing trainings, uh, but we didn't. And mm -hmm. so now we're finding ourselves in a, in a crux a bit, you know, having to train people very quickly to get up to speed. And what I mean by train is uh, we came from a deaf-centric place, and then it has sort of moved more market-centric. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. is now what I'm seeing in the, as the trend. It's becoming a little bit more transactional. And there is a real deep ethos and belief. This is, this is a service. This is not a business. Mm -hmm. This is not a gig where you're going to make a lot of money. This is a job you do because you believe in the power of art to change lives. Mm -hmm. And you believe that this hub where people gather is political real estate that needs to be capitalized, mm -hmm. which means bring all bodies together to see all stories. Mm -hmm. And then if that happens, you know, we have a we have the potential to change mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. I think one of the the few upsides of the pandemic was that when we were all stuck in our homes and having access to theater in a a way that we hadn't before, one of my one of my hopes was that, oh, wow, we have these services that, you know, there are performances that are being interpreted and captioned and, you know, audio description and all of that. And my fear was that once, you know, I obviously we're still in the pandemic, but one of my fears was that all of that, that work would be forgotten about and that we would go back to doing what we did before in terms of not all, not everyone having access to theater and I think one of the results of what you what you were just saying is that the demand is so high, but the training and the representation and um, other challenges, they, they haven't, it's almost as if it's become like a commodity. And it's like, wait a minute, this, this is something that should have been around way before the pandemic. And we're glad you're paying attention to it. But you have to, there needs to be a little bit more intentionality and um, more conversation around how do we supply the demand for these art service, or excuse me, these service workers who are providing this access to the disabled community. Um, and you spoke a little bit about it in your last answer with some of the challenges with, with training. Are there any other challenges currently that you have experienced or that you've noticed um, in terms of uh, with interpreting theater? Well, I think you hit a lot of the points. Thank you. I think that's, <laughs> no, it's true. I think, I think that we're in a funny place. Uh, I think we're in a funny place. Look, historically, we've been segregated. Historically, we've, you know, we're racist. The field of interpreting is pri primarily white. Um, and, uh, and that's on us. That's totally on us. We're trying to we're trying to repair harms that are historic harms that have been going on for centuries mm -hmm. in a very short span of time. That's fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, let's turn it up. Let's do it. Um, we can't lose ground, though. I mean, and I'm, my concern is, my concern is, we're moving without 
deep listening. Mm -hmm. And we need places to come together to have deep listening because this needs to be community driven. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it becomes, a like you said, a commodity. It becomes virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. It becomes the checkbox on the access. The theater looks good, but you're not really providing the community what it what it needs, mm-hmm. or and you're also, uh, I I would say, what I'm experiencing on the service end as an interpreter is people making decisions about my work mm-hmm. for me who have nothing to do with the field of deafness or right. interpreting or but they're woke, so mm-hmm. they're going to tell me all about how I should be doing my work, and mm-hmm. you're kind of going, whoa, mm-hmm. this is exactly what we don't need to. We don't need to be repeating. Um, we don't. It's not an act of benevolence. It's a right. Mm-hmm. And don't start changing the. Don't start calling me an access worker. Did mm. you ask me what my job is? Why am I an? A- I'm a sign language interpreter. Mm-hmm. And then you have to go. Why are you needing to change the language that is my profession? Are you? uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. Or do you need to own it? Mm-hmm. Is this a form of appropriation? Oh, everybody does the same thing? Well, that's a little bit demeaning. Mm-hmm. No, it, you can respect all the differences in what we do, but it doesn't mean that you have to like scale us down to all being the same. Exactly. And that's what happens. Disabled people are the same. Black people are all the same. Y'all all the same, all the same, all the same, because your IQ can only digest 0.02 difference. <laughs> I mean, it's bad. I'm sorry. That no. Was, no uh, okay. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with you completely. So and the dilemma is, I guess this is my point. The dilemma is if you see this as not a political endeavor, then mm-hmm. you're going. To, we're going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. This is a political act. Mm-hmm. Interpreting for the theater is a political act. Mm-hmm. Sharing this space is a political act. Mm-hmm. And we need to be in this conversation about what politics are being made. It's not about money. Right, right. And, I mean, it needs. we have economic justice that needs to be addressed. Yes, I'm not saying we do this for free. There, mm-hmm. there has to be support. But... There also has to be a shared ethos and philosophy about the approach to work. Yes. That's what gets lost in the transactional market-centric model mm-hmm. of just providing services. Mm-hmm. There needs to be um, conversation around how do we make this work? And you mentioned earlier of like, how do we pay people to do to do the work that they do? And if it's not included in the budget, if it's not mindfully thought about, then it gets forgotten. And then when something happens, it's like, oh, we have to fix this now without, it's very reactionary. And it seems like the tide is kind of turning where it's more proactive, which is really interesting to to watch various um, organizations and theater companies go through that journey. Only thanks to you. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. I really am serious. Art New York. Art New York's collaborative efforts and outreach and providing space for these conversations, mm-hmm. pushing these conversations, not being afraid to leap in and open up Pandora's box. I right. mean, and really, you guys have been here the whole time, pushing and pushing. And so, and offering and offering and celebrating and celebrating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just have to say, you know, thank you because it's. If, we, if we're not doing this work together, it won't work. Mm-hmm. And just we keep seeing this over and over. Can't be a silo effort. Exactly. Exactly. Can you talk about your work with deaf artists and some of the challenges that they face or some of the wins that have happened? Because I've been seeing a lot of 
of deaf artists on stage in a way that I, I hadn't been in the past, what, two years, yes. which is really interesting to see. But, you know, how, how has your work with deaf artists been? Oh, I mean, yes, we're seeing a sort of a rena- would it be a renaissance since I, I mean, I, or uh, maybe it's the first time. I don't right, know. exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, we've had, yes, we're, it's beautiful what we're seeing now. There, there is definitely a lot of media attention uh, and stage attention to deaf artists and um, both in front of and behind the scenes mm-hmm, now. I mm-hmm. think that's what's really, that's the shift. I, um, I think, you know, for me, I, I think when I had a personal experience of re- realizing that 504 sit-in, and the requirement of interpreter, you know, the legal, the legal provision of interpreters, mandate for interpreters, really uh, hit home for me was when I interpreted for um, Millicent Simmons mm-hmm. uh, in Wonderstruck. She was twelve years old, a twelve-year-old deaf actress, wow. and I'm interpreting, and I go, "This is why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. This is why we did this, and this is why we had the sit-ins." So. Mm-hmm you, a young emerging actress, can go out and, you know, change the world. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think interpreting for the theater has a place here as well. It is also an opportunity for young deaf artists, children, Mm -hmm. to come and see art Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and give them the inspiration to become an artist. Mm -hmm. And when the interpreting team has dazzles, Mm -hmm. has deaf interpreters involved, that kind of representation there also is a, a strong model mm-hmm. for young deaf children to go, oh, I can do this. I can be a part of the arts. And um, I think we have to look for ways wherever we are to open doors to make those connections so that, you know, the network just extends. It mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't shrink. It extends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. Like being able to, you know, I know when I was a, a kid and, seeing a representation of people who were disabled and with any disability was so important and now being an adult and seeing little kids have that representation and notice that the the tide is turning it is slow but it is turning and I'm like oh wow okay we are making some improvement that the needle is moving and I, I think that is so valuable as a child to be able to see yourself or, you know, a piece of yourself being represented in the arts, that that is so important. For anyone who is unfamiliar with hands-on, with interpretive theater, um, with your work, what would you think is one thing that they should know? And I know this is a very (laughs) big question, but um, I think hands-on is really a, an organization unlike any other. It's very community-bound. It's mm-hmm. committed to the arts. Um, Beth Prever has been running this organization for decades, um, pretty much on her own. I mean, mm-hmm. along with Candace Brecker-Penn and a few other people. But, I mean, it's really been a commitment to the arts, mm-hmm. the love of the arts, and, and including the deaf community at every step of the way. And... I think uh, with Art New York's support and and hands-on support, which is always to have conversations with audiences, welcome audiences in, design design places that will be barrier-free, both attitudinally and Mm -hmm. architecturally, um, I think that those efforts, we're seeing a huge change. The audience is growing 
a lot for interpreted theater. Mm-hmm. Our interpreters are growing a lot. I mean, it's beautiful to see. It's a moment to celebrate. And yes, we can lose this moment. I, mm-hmm. I don't want to just like la, 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 la. Right, right. I mean, we're, we're seeing the push. We're seeing the tide go back. I think we, I think it's, what we can't get lost in is the narrative of despair. Mm-hmm. And what we can't get lost in is um, uh, living a past narrative. That past can inform us, but it can't trap us. Right. So I think we need to celebrate, mm-hmm. do, I mean, as we move forward and know that we got to fight with fierce love. It's got to be fierce warrior love. Can't be this sweet little love ya. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll put an interpreter there for you. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. It's going to be... Yeah. A little bit more aggressive. A little bit more. A little more, bit. Yeah. A little, little bit. bit. Yeah. <laughs> Ashley, Ashley, Ashley. What a dynamic interview. Yes, it was. Wow. I mean, working with Lynette for the past year and the entire hands-on team from Beth Prever and Candace Broker Penn, you know, I was very fortunate to see firsthand or I should say hands-on, uh-huh. Uh, they're incredible. <laughs> I know, I'm so punny. Um, they're, they're incredible work with interpretive theater, especially, you know, I sat in on one of their trainings, uh, training workshop last October that Art New York hosted. But this interview was a really special treat, especially to hear the beginnings of such a, like a profound human being. I was really moved simply by Lynette's language. Like when she said, quote, origin stories are hard. Where do you start the origins? End quote. Uh, like, yes, yes, Lynette, give me that language. <laughs> so what was your takeaway about hearing um, about her origins, about her beginnings? That quote was so powerful, first of all. Um, when it comes to origin stories, what I appreciated about hers was how it found her she didn't go looking for it or to be more specific it wasn't like it was something that she was actively going towards and it didn't exactly fall into her lap but I loved how she mentioned that you know there wasn't a a coincidence like it Mm. wasn't by accident you know and I thought that was she just happened to be at the right place and at the right time and all of the things were lined up for her to take part in this historical event and it just reminded me I think how in life when it comes to what your calling is or what your purpose is sometimes it finds you you don't find it Mm. so I thought that was really cool I love that she used the word karmic Mm -hmm. yes yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's what that was yeah I love that and I was like wow you know this thing you got to be a part of this thing and you were just going to, you know, do something for your mom, I think. And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, cool. cool. And she said, yes, that's, that's she the said thing. She said yes, yeah. Is that when it finds you, you have the opportunity to say yes or no. And she said yes. Mm. Um, and kept saying yes. Mm-hmm. And it led to, to more, um, a fuller experience and meeting all these new people. And then it started to inform her work. Mm. Um, and I thought that that was... That was really neat. It like threw her on the right yeah. life path that she yeah. that she was gonna be, what yeah. she was gonna be doing. Um, so, listeners, you're kind of getting a little behind the scenes information. <laughs> um, so, Lynette followed up followed up with us after that recording, and I'm gonna read a little bit from the email she sent us. She writes, "Quote: I did, of course, walk away with many things I wish I had said." 
One was about the importance of Black Lives Matter and we see you white American theater in the push for change. That is one of the reasons we are seeing the demand for access services, visibility, and more awareness that representation matters in interpreting just as it does everywhere else. This accelerated push in the demand for BIPOC interpreters has shown the fissure and revealed to the historic segregation of our communities. Interpreting has been a white hearing dominated feel, so we have a lot of work to do, reparative, restorative, and generative as we move forward to rectify the past harmful practices. I just wanted to note that I think with all of the Black Lives Matter protests, many of the same community practices sprang up as they did when I was in San Francisco. Interpreters just showed up and were there to support the community. I just wanted to acknowledge those who are carrying on the practices today. It's still alive and well. That's And that's Lynette Taylor. And so reading her response now, I oh know she's so like I, how she I, writes is just, just like <laughs> how she speaks, how she writes is just Lynette, we love you. Um, so reading this response now, it really, for me, really shines light on something she said about her interview about even like within the goods of a civil rights movement, there is growth and radical change that is needed to fight systematic oppression, racism, even internally of these practices. And Lynette really takes ownership and accountability by saying, you know, it's on us. We need to do better. So I would love to hear, Ashley, what you think about this. Like, what are the intersectionalities that need to be addressed when looking at anti-ableist work, disability equity work, looking at anti-racism and anti-oppression practices? Yeah, I mean, I appreciated that uh, Lynette mentioned that with everything that's going on with our industry currently, that we're being shown a lot of progress. It's It's kind of at a snail's pace I think like oh my gosh it's 2023 and we have not fixed this yet are you serious Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I think it's important to know um that we can still acknowledge how far we've come and still be like we still have far to go Mm. and being that when it comes to um being anti-ableist, anti-racist, and other anti-oppression issues, um, it, I think it's one of the, all of that is connected. And so you can't be one without being the other. You can't say, I'm Mm anti-ableist and be racist. Mm -hmm. You can't be, you know, you can't say, I'm I'm uh, anti-racist Mm-hmm. and be ableist yeah. it's all connected and if you're not looking at one if you're not looking at all of that and really holding yourself and these uh organizations and these institutions within the theater field accountable for those mm-hmm. things then uh it makes the work that still needs to be done harder yeah it's more than just intentions you exactly. have to hold you have to hold us accountable you have to hold Exactly. These and I, systems accountable. I think it's it's also one of those things where in noting how much work we still have to do mm-hmm. that we don't necessarily want to roll the waters back. Yeah. You can still have acknowledgement of the work that needs to be done and be like, yeah, we, we, we still have further to do. But it's it's. I think it's both multiple things can be true at once. Mm-hmm. And when you start getting into, well, well, we've come this far. Like, why are we still talking about this? Progress has been made. 
and not pay attention to what's actively happen, happening now. Mm-hmm. Or if you go in the reverse and be like, well, we still have work to do and this isn't changing, you're not acknowledging the work that has been done. Both can live yeah. at the same time. Challenges yeah. and also celebrations. Exactly. Mm. And uh, speaking of uh, hierarchies, I just loved the, I mean, just the fun lineup of the 25 cent tent. You know, yeah, yes. when you asked her about <laughs> about the elevator and she said, well, those are for the VIPs. And yeah. so like even in something. Right. Like, I forgot about that. I was like, oh, yeah. there was a hierarchy. There system. was a hierarchy system, you know, just on where intimate moments happened, you know. But I think I think what will will stick with me for this entire interview you did with her was how young at a young, impressionable age Lynette was these life altering experiences affected her work decades on, as you said earlier um, today and how she is so community driven and her work is so generative after having, um, yeah, just a lot of life lessons she learned in her time there. Mm -hmm. So reflecting on your interview, the final question, what are some moments that are going to stay with you? Uh, What's a moment of this interview that has haunted you? Oh, there's so many, and why I have to pick one. Um, this one actually, I was gonna go with the elevator hierarchy system, but actually, this one just came to me. It was at some point in the interview, she mentioned how she had felt bad about being an artist that to do this work mm. um, and try to do her art at the same time. It was like she stopped doing that for a while. And felt guilty because this, almost like this work was more important. And I think as artists, as administrators, whatever your role is in theater, once again, multiple things can be true at one time. And you can still do this work and be able to do the things that um, you are passionate about, that you don't, it doesn't have to be an either or. And I really connected with that because I felt that at, at, at moments in the beginning of my career as an artist, like, oh, there are all these things that I care about, especially as a person who identifies as disabled. How can I marry these two things? Because I'm going to get on my soapbox, but how is that going to interfere with my art? Like, mm. is it? am I going to be the one who is thought of as the contrarian because I'm always bringing up these things, these issues, these oppressions, these um, systems, these practices? Can I do both? Mm-hmm. Um and I found it really interesting that, that, oh, wow, Lynette's felt that too. So it's not, <laughs> it's we're not like, alone. We're not alone. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not the first person to feel this way. And I yeah. won't be the last person to feel this way. Exactly. Um, I think that was, that was a big thing that'll stay with me. Well, thank you. Thank you for that answer. Thank you. I would love to highlight this incredible organization that we have mentioned a few times now that Lynette is a big part of, and that is hands on. And for folks who don't know Hands-On as intimately as we do at Art New York, Hands-On's mission is to provide access to arts and cultural programs for the deaf and hard of hearing communities. Hands-On is one of the only organizations of its kind, offering sign interpretive performances for -for non-for-profit theatrical arena, along with information on deafness and the arts across New York City and the country. It was founded in 1982 by the incredible Beth Prever, they began with six interpretive performances, but now average around 20 to 30 interpreted Broadway and off-Broadway productions a year. Wow, that's that's a big growth. Yeah. Since its inception, Hands-On has provided over 500 interpretive performances. And if you're interested in learning more about Hands-On, visit handson.org. That's H-A-N-D-S-O-N.org. 
I would also love to share that Lynette acknowledges the many women organizers of the 504 sit-in, including Mary Lou Breslin, Kitty Cohn, Judy Human, and Pat Wright, and that unfortunately there is only one surviving deaf member of the sit-in, Steve McKellen. And last but not least, we have an update to our story. This is exciting. <laughs> Lynette did go back to college attending New York University Tisch School of the Arts studying film. And she writes that it took decades to pay off her student loans. Ugh. Oh, gosh. Right. That, that just hurts my heart because, like, I will always be paying off my student uh-huh. loans. So <laughs> we feel you, Lynette. And congratulations for actually paying them off. Even yes, it took congratulations. That's huge. <laughs> Ashley, thank you so much for this lovely episode. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? I had a blast. It, Lynette was great. And um, if you have the opportunity to see her interpret or hear her speak or hear her um, teach a training, um, you're in for a treat. Yeah. Check them out. Mm-hmm. Check them out, folks. Well, listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and visit art-newyork.org to learn more about the many programs and offerings, including our very own What's Off podcast. Until next time. For decades, Art New York has supported our city's resilient theater makers during unprecedented times. The aftermath of 9-11, economic downturns, the COVID-19 pandemic, Each of these challenges ultimately paved the way for brilliant theatrical innovation. When you give to Art New York, you're helping us sustain our members, no matter what the future brings. Visit our website at art-newyork.org slash donate to contribute. Together, we can uplift the most vibrant artists working today and the cutting edge innovators of tomorrow. What's Off is a production of Art New York. Executive producer, David E. Shane. Associate producer, Erica Ray Barnes. Line producers, Ashley J. Hicks and Nikki Maggio. With audio engineering by Catalan Media. Music.